Hello and welcome to Josie Long and Robin Ince's Book Shambles. Uh, we are the Metropolitan Media Elite who have taken over the airwaves. Not really airwaves, probably not airwaves on a computer, is it? It's more of a digital system. Unstoppable digital broadcasting 24-7. If you were to listen to this 24 times... Seven days a week. Yeah, and some of the other episodes. I mean, we've nearly we've taken over a high percentage of under five percent of the uh, of the internet, uh, and we're going to be talking about books as usual. And today's guest is Chris Hadfield. I've written a book. You've written. I have. Turns out. <laughs> Do you know what? While you're here, actually, Chris, could we start off? Because the problem with doing anything with you is the moment I do something with you, someone goes, oh, you've got Chris Hadfield on. Can you get him to sign this? So I've got your pen. So could you sign your copy of An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth? That's for Gareth. You could just do that. Uh, I will indeed um, for Gareth, yes. Uh, right. We were doing... I don't know who Gareth is, but he's taking tremendous liberties. I know he is. I don't even know Gareth. It's one of my niece's uh, friends. She went, it'll it'll improve his gift. And she never gets me anything for Christmas. Oh. So it's like, I'm helping her with a Christmas gift, that, and I won't be getting anything. Ah, uh, but in the entire balance of the universe, it's going to come back to you, Robin. You'll be fine. I am two narcissistic even nice beyond have... the balance of my own bedroom. It's very nice to have the perspective of somebody who's been in space for things like this. For Gareth, wherever you are, there's a signed book. The um, Well, this is what I thought we would start off on, which is you were in that book. You talk about the fact that you were nine years old. You saw the moon landing and you thought, hey, that's something to do. <laughs> and it's a beautiful introduction because it talks about the fact that you there living on a farm. You see this thing and you think, right, this is what I'm going to do. And I know it's a long shot. I'm a Canadian. There is no Canadian astronaut program. So I want to know. Book-wise, because I know that every day you went to school, you thought, what does an astronaut need to do? What were you reading from the age of nine, thinking, I'm going to get to the moon or at least into space? Uh, I read Edgar Rice Burroughs. I read Jules Verne. I love Mysterious Island. Mysterious Island was, it was sort of like a moonshot. I don't know if you remember that story, but but these guys get in a balloon and they get blown to some desert island and then they use their intuition and and cunning and, and what they know of Victorian technology to try and set up as advanced a, a situation as they can against all of the unknowns and the dugongs, which I still don't really know what a dugong is. And and to me, those stories, H.G. Uh, Wells and, and then Arthur C. Clarke and... H.G. Wells, great. I actually have in my bag. I couldn't find it when you came in. I brought my uh, little copy of First Men in the Moon as oh, well. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, wow. And, and I read those. And then... Uh, Heinlein and uh, and Arthur Clarke and, and those uh, those stories, I think... Uh, helped to not not even flesh out my dreams. I helped. I think they helped to expand the edge of what I thought um, might may someday be possible. And therefore, it seemed fairly straightforward uh, with all of those stories to just go to the moon, you know, to the space station and back. How hard can that be? Easier than if your air balloon got lost. It's got a clear trajectory. <laughs> yeah, to, you know, going out to a large obelisk on uh, on the edge of the solar system. That we're not trying to do that. I'm just just trying to go to the space station and back. So that's the great. When you mention Arthur C. Clarke, and uh, I don't, did you mention Asimov? I, uh, I did. But Asimov, I did. they were both writing nonfiction as well. So you yeah. see, Arthur C. Clarke wrote fantastic collections and and full novels, as did Asimov. But also, they would appear on television, going, "I believe that in 1964 we will be able to do this," and by 2000. So that. Do you remember watching those things? And go, again, going, these things will be in my grasp. I'm nine now. We are in a simpler time. But by the time I'm 25. Do you realize that there's there's a Clark orbit? Like one of the, uh, if, if you do the balance of the math between uh, a planet and a spaceship and other planets, th there are certain types of orbits that, that become uh, definitive, that become standard. And 
Clark invented one of them. He was he wasn't all science fiction. He actually figured out the math and realized, oh, this this is this is a clever idea that will serve some purpose. So so that's a pretty intoxicating uh, thing for a young person to find out that this science fiction is really just an extension of the science fact that's actually going on right now. And these same people have a foot in both worlds. It's not just, uh, you know. Uh, some weird kind. orcs and and fantasy stuff that doesn't really exist this is this is actual uh, just an extrapolation of some of the things that are going to happen so it was both influential but also i think motivational inspirational so child you when you were first reading those books and you were imagining having those daydreams of going into space what did you think? You, well, for instance, you know, 10-year-old you, 11-year-old you, where did you think he was gonna you walk might on the moon. be? Oh, I was going to walk on the moon for sure. That was Well, that was the benchmark of the time, right? Walk mm-hmm. on the moon. Plus, the idea of setting foot on the surface of another world, it's what inspired us to go to the Arctic and the Antarctic and the New World. And, and it's, to some degree, what inspires us to leave home at 17 is I'm going to set foot in a new world, a thing that is totally foreign and unknown to me. But to extrapolate that to the limit of trying to leave the atmosphere and go actually stand on the dusty surface of somewhere else, that was my uh, Buck Rogers, Neil Armstrong vision of what it was going to be like for me. And, uh, and I still haven't. Do you feel, I mean, would you now say you are, this is, you, you've had your final trip into space, unless perhaps no. technology changes and you go, well, t- now there is the possibility to reach Mars? Or- yeah, I think technology changes rapidly. Uh, what's going to answer your question is whether we get a significant advance in engine technology in the remaining years of my life or not. If we go from propellers to jets, I think, it, that that equivalent, where suddenly you can fly so much higher that you can go so much faster that suddenly transatlantic travel becomes nothing. You know, flying across the Atlantic, no big deal. Where it used to be death, and then it became maybe life or death, and, and then it became huh, reasonable, but still pretty arduous. And now you, you complain if the movie isn't good, you know? So at, at some point, we'll make that step in space travel. We're, we're, but right now, we're still uh, blathering around with, with propeller-driven versions of it. And, and so when that happens... Uh, and I, I don't know with what Elon Musk is doing right now, trying to land a rocket ship... Um, after they've they've spit the satellite off, that type of advance um, is going to lead hopefully to a chance where maybe I'll fly again. But I'm not dissatisfied. I, I didn't walk in the moon, but the things I've gotten to do and and the the stories that are in that book as a result or in those books um, are immensely satisfying. I, I'm not at all uh, holding my breath or waiting to feel some sort of. Uh, joy that I've yet to accomplish. No, I, I'm, I'm immensely sad. If all I ever do for the rest of my life is sit around and have this um, illegal smile, uh, I'm okay with that. I was going to say, I think it would be devastating to me if you were like, I just, I should, I should be on Mars and I'm not. <laughs> and like, but yeah, but you've seen the earth from the outside. You've seen all the beauty of humanity. Yeah, yeah but it's nothing to do with Mars, is it? That'd no, be heartbreaking. that's not how I, if someone said to me though, we want you to devote the next 10 years of your life to trying to safely get to Mars mm-hmm. with a crew of people, uh, that, to me, that would be wonderful. I'd love to do that, sure. 
What, well, what a, sure wouldn't that be a great adventure? Why not? What the heck? Oh, it'd be wonderful. Yeah, well, of well, course, of course. Sorry. You did a radio show with Brian Blessed when we were doing Monkey Cage. You didn't the first time we had him on before you were on with. He was so angry about the fact he was there going, "I want to go to Mars. Why haven't we gone to Mars?" You know, when he was eight years old, that would be in the 1940s. He'd seen an image of Mars, and he yeah. thought, yeah. "Do you actually think that perhaps for someone growing up in the 1940s, as opposed to when you were growing up in the 1970s, you almost had a greater level of realism because in the 1940s, we were being offered all these amazing stories, and maybe someone like Brian, as an eight-year-old boy, was thinking, "Oh, we will have populated, you know, most of our galaxy. We'll have spread ourselves." Brian's <laughs> angry about everything all the time. I, I'm not too worried about it, but yeah, perhaps I think we do get shaped by both the fantasy and the reality all the time, and often the the reality is. Phenomenally fulfilling and exciting at the same time, without maybe having to be a complete fantasy. And the stuff that I've done and the things that I've seen are ridiculously fun and and satisfying and delightful. But plus, they've opened doors. I, I was Canada's first spacewalker, and now there have been other people spacewalking. There will be more, and that's a magnificent experience. And and I, I've seen the world in a way that I never would have thought or imagined I could have by this point. So so I think. It would be noisy, but it would be nice to have Brian on the space station for a while, <laughs> just so that um, he could see that there's more uh, to exploration than just arriving somewhere, mm. but but actually to see the world for what it is. Uh, I think he'd come back and, and say, forget Mars, this is wonderful, what we're seeing on the space station. Well, when you, when you wrote the first book... Um, was there a when you're trying to put into words the sensation of being able to look back at your home planet? I can, I, I mean, that's the thing that every time that I've kind of met you, and I think, well, there are certain things, there are certain human experiences that whatever the poetry may be, it can never get that, that visceral sensation. I mean, right. how hard did you find it to create that expression beyond, as you said, the illegal smile, the gleam in your eyes, these things? Yeah, uh, you can never do it proper justice, you know, how, uh, narrate me a sunset, you know, and it's like, hey, and now there's orange over here, and look at that yellow, and it's magnificent, it reminds me of this, and you can use parallels and, and similes and descriptive words, and none of it will even come close to the, the silent grandeur of a sunset, but that's okay. Uh, the it can put images into your mind just through the verbal descriptions and new versions of it, new ideas of it. You can look at a sunset through the 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 focus of what's technically happening. You can talk about how the energy is coming out of the sun. You can look at how the particulate from a volcano three years ago is affecting how the sunset looks. Or you can talk about how the clouds that are beyond the horizon are actually changing how the sunset looks right now which none of those might be apparent to you when you're just standing on the hilltop going, wow, isn't that glorious? And I think it's probably the combination of both, of what words allow us to explain and imagine compared to the direct experience of life and how you rationalize the two of them together that, that makes reading, uh, I think, worthwhile. I, I feel embarrassed because I feel like all my questions are so silly and I just love hearing you speak. So I'm like, yes, that's true. That's beautiful. I, this I was... is just so you know, this is a hard one because we've recorded about six of these and the main complaint we get, they always talk over each other. So today there are going to be in all our recordings, these kind of bits of silence where we both look at each other going, can we attempt professionalism? <laughs> so this is the problem that we have. I know. I'm, and also I have silly I'll things. I'll start talking that... over you every yeah, time here. Yes. Yeah, that'd be fine. Well, that's Make you feel comfortable story. with it. No, no, no. Let's all talk over each other I now. Silly Let's make up I want to say. 
like I love the idea that I, I was recently doing a quiz with some friends and one of the questions was and it was a trick question so it was ah. like which man-made structure can you see from space and everyone puts Great Wall of China which right. apparently you can't which you cannot uh, no and me and my friend were like Suez Canal Suez Canal right but then I thought you could just spend the odd week going around quizzes waiting for that question just so you could stand <laughs> up and be like none of it none of it yeah did you uh, can you see anything Suez you can see the Panama Canal uh, you can. Uh, I deserve that. Point. Yeah, you could. You, you did indeed. You can see lots of things. Any place there is something that is high contrast, like a really sharp road that cuts across uh, an undulating terrain, or a dead straight road, or where the color contrast is really bright. Harbors stand out, of wow. course. So Harbors, quite a lot of like to- Tokyo Harbor, is so man-made. Uh, that that it's obvious, you know, you can just see it completely. But the small subtleties of something like the Great Wall, no, because it, it's it's contoured and it's dirt colored and it's like beautifully camouflaged. It's like they were trying to hide it from aliens. You can't see the Great Wall of China, but no, you can see all sorts of uh, Dubai. Of course, is ridiculous from space with the Palm Islands and the World Islands. It's like it's like they're trying to give aliens something to take snapshots of on the way by. Um, so yeah, there's lots of man-made things you can see. I suppose it's not a funny kind of, like, uh, I'm not sure how to... Transposition of human beings' ambitions. Because that sort <laughs> yeah. of is what they're doing, but they would never think that's what they're doing. You know, they're saying, like, I am Ozymandias, look at me, I'm <laughs> so great. You know, but that, but literally what they're doing is, like... I think it's I, Ozymandias, so, I'm afraid of being insignificant. And therefore, <laughs> I want to do something that... Um, that will be my particular pyramid, and and whether it's oh, it's, can you see the pyramids? Uh, if at the, if the sun's low enough, because you can really only see the shadows, wow. because the pyramids are the same color as the dirt, really sure. to a large degree. So you're not going to see that because it looks like dirt. But if the if it's morning or night or dawn or dusk, then the shadows are long enough just on the edge of Cairo, and you know where to look because you can find the Nile no matter what, and then you can see where Cairo splits into Alexandria. And if you remember where the start where the pyramids are, just there on the left, um, then you can actually narrow and find. I never saw the Sphinx, but I did see the pyramids, even though wow. they're right next. And of course, there are lots of pyramids, but these are the great pyramids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, and then of course, you can grab a big camera lens and, and like, a, like a, it becomes like a microscope where suddenly you can see the minutiae. But with the naked eye, uh, there, there are lots of man-made things you can see on the world. And, and some of them, like Dubai, you sort of look, it's almost like suddenly you're looking at somebody's misbehavior. You're like, what are they up to down there? What are they thinking? That's why? supposed to be a desert, guys. <laughs> how, how, how on earth did we rationalize to the point that that's what we're up to in this corner of the world? But at the same time, you go, eh, what the heck? Yeah, they, the world's spinning, there we go. Yeah, there you but go. That's, there, the that's what they're doing. That's wow. new Ozymandias, isn't it? Yes. Look on my shopping centres, <laughs> ye mighty. Yeah. And look at, that's the, you know, Dubai, this great big shopping centre. But where, climate you know, change, when, when I think about climate change. You yeah. don't have to, yeah, there's no, you don't even have to see them rot. You don't even have to see the decline that you just, you walk into it no. and you go, I despair. Yeah, <laughs> well done, Ozymandias. You've, 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 got, you've really found the shortcut to despair. Thanks very much. Yeah, Westfield. <laughs> we've built it into a shopping mall. Yeah, actually... I think that a sense of despair diminishes a lot to go around the world. You look at it and you realize this is just what we're up to. It's all right. We're just us. We're doing these things. Some of them great and magnificent. Some of them very self-indulgent. Some of them just trivial. But it's just a bunch of people uh, pursuing their own ends. And most of it is pretty magnificent, actually. The thing, you know, what, the number of us that are living, the standard of living, the accomplishment, the level of health, the, you know, it's not perfect by any means. But Dubai's we're, got we're loads doing of water slides. Well. And they do, and they have an indoor <laughs> ski hill and, and create probably the longest zip line in the world and craziness there. But uh, I, I think you get a little more indulgent seeing the whole thing at once. 
We, we I, wanted to ask. Oh, no, no, okay. We wanted to ask you what kind of things you had read in space, but also I wanted to ask what kind of silly things you like to read. Like, what would you say your indulgences are? Your literary indulgences are. See, I'm I'm excited to hear that if I say scientific progress goes boink, you will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> On board the space station, in the toilet, we kept um, shit. My dad says. Ha. <laughs> In the toilet. Because it's perfect bathroom reading. And in fact, Justin Halpern, who wrote it, I think he wrote it recognizing how long people normally sit in the bathroom, tried to make each chapter that long. And it's it's perfect bathroom reading. So uh, and it's funny because we had it there. And it, it, you have to either Velcro it to the wall or strap it down with a bungee or something. But it turns out the handrail on the left side of the toilet is just the right thickness for the thickness of Justin Halpern's book. So it wedges in behind the handrail. And so I read it, and then I, uh, I stamped it with the space station stamps and then brought it back to Earth and gave it to him. So he has he has that copy of his book back on Earth. So that's one of the books I read in space. Can we be told the dimensions? Because this will now allow lots of keen <laughs> authors who think, I, I don't care how many people read the book as long as at least seven of them are in space. Yeah. So what dimensions do we need to work on with our publishers to make sure that we can get our, our book wedged in an astronaut toilet? I, th- I think if you take your right thumb and you bend it at the first knuckle... And you take slightly thicker than that. I think right. that that's about the thick, not too thick. He's got very oh, small I've got thumbs. weird thumbs. Though. Oh, I have oh yeah, borrow someone. Weird yeah, thumbs. yeah, not your thumb. This yeah. is this is not a Robin Ince thumb. We're talking oh. just a typical uh, person just, in the street I'd say thumb. That's probably so not, an inch non-freak and a half. thumb. My <laughs> my thumb is a very poor thing. I'll, also, I'll end up on the QE two. Wedged <laughs> in an astronaut's wedged. toilet is a brilliant title <laughs> for something. Yeah, <laughs> not his thumb, <laughs> but yes, your your book would float out. I'm yeah. afraid of, yeah. And also, if I did get to the ISS and think, I'll just wedge my thumb in there. <laughs> How long's been up there now? 17 years. He's beaten Tim Peake. Idiot put his freakish thumb in there. <laughs> the, um, what, before we, because I know that you are, do you like Calvin and Hobbes? Is this right? I love Calvin and Hobbes. Good. I wanted to check on that because that to me is a mark of a human being. The two things are, anyone who goes, I don't really get Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> no, thank you. Oof. We don't need a car journey. We don't need you in Oof. the room. No, you no, get no, out. No, and that. Calvin and Hobbes, Ollie. not really my thing. So yes. a very funny thing where they'd put um, Donald Trump's face on Calvin in something where he was talking <laughs> about his insatiable lust for power or something. And, and the um... Spaceman Spiff is, is my favourite. Spa- oh, Calvin oh, yeah, being yeah, yeah. Spaceman Spiff and all the adventures of the universe and the slightly troubled, worried, but but going along kind of theory that Hobbes has all the time. It's it's uh, It's terrific. I like Calvin and Hobbes. It's a beautiful work of philosophy. So, so I want to go back to when you were a child, when you were a teenager, when you hmm. knew what your ambitions were, as well as the, the fictions you were reading. What were you? Uh, what, what were the books you thought? Right, I need to know about this. What were they? Were they all flight? I I, uh, I knew that you fly in space, so I knew I was going to be uh, a pilot. And so I, you know, there's a book called From the Ground Up that uh, that is uh, every all the. It's kind of the distillation of a hundred years of uh, of what you need to know to fly an airplane. So from the ground up, and and then all the other things, uh, you know, how to do things, uh, scuba diving books, and and how to how to do that, and understanding the world and geography and and geology. Really, really interested in paleontology, and I read books about that. Uh, so it, it's always been a balance between between the two of, of the fantasy, but also all of the skills and things that, that maybe someday I'll have a chance to do or need to do in order to go further. How many people, when, when you were at school, what was the point that you thought, right, I'm going to, I don't mind a couple of my friends knowing that I want to be an astronaut. Do you, do you get messages from people going, well done, Chris, you always remember when you were 14 and you went, I'm going to be an astronaut. No, I... It, I uh... 
I think it was university before I put a picture of the space shuttle up above my desk because the space shuttle was still in design stages. It flew when I was in um, third or fourth year university for the first time. But growing up, National Geographic put a big thing of the moon. I don't know if you remember it, but the moon on the front side and the back side, and it was kind of, you know, went along with um, the first voyages there. But I had that above my bed growing up. That was, it was a reminder every night, but it was also kind of a silent declaration to myself of, hey, this, this is what I want to do. When I was in grade... Five, uh, I did a project on the moon, and that was sort of a declaration. But my, I remember my mom and I on the, on our hands and knees in the kitchen of the farmhouse I was in with a balloon and a big tub of plaster of Paris and the National ah. Geographic map next to us, and first gooping up the balloon, making the balloon as round as we could, and then gooping it with plaster of Paris, and then doing all of the craters and mare and everything of the entire moon to come up with this this self-made globe of the moon so that when I stood up in front of my grade five class to do my, what we called a major project, which was like one word, a major project, to do my major project of the year that I could, I could talk about the moon and where we're going. And, and I think all of those were declarations of intent, but none of them uh, through a trumpet, most of them just through uh, hopefully a steadily increasing um, understanding of them, you know, more internal than external reminding myself of where I was trying to head. Well, that's right. Uh, Trent, can you check out? That's Trent, our producer, who's just through the glass there. Hello, Trent. Um, when I know you're at the Science Museum, uh, maybe today and definitely tomorrow. Both. The, have you, you know those beautiful images that were taken by, I forget his name now, he was an astronomer who the camera equipment was not of the technology that would allow him to take pictures of the moon. So he made these beautiful... I don't know about that. Ah, oh. It's in the Science Museum. Oh, really? And so he would look at the moon and then he'd sketch the moon and then because he would take photos oh. of the versions of the moon that he made out of clay and wow. he made out of plaster of Paris and it is, it's such a beautiful that thing of going, I, I'm going to make a photo. So it's, it's like Ray Harryhausen. <laughs> it's like Ray Harryhausen working on Mysterious Island. That's you know, I can't get real giant scorpions, but I can kind of make what I think the <laughs> yes. giant scorpion's going to be. Um, Interesting. How yeah. much of your work is, we'll find out who it is in it. Tell me when you've got it, uh, Trent. Because that's, well, that's something else. It, those moments of wonder, not merely being in space. I've got a, a lovely book somewhere here. There we go. The Scotty Book of Space Travel, two and six, which is 12 and a half From pence. Star Trek. Uh, this is uh, the second edition, 1957. Wow. So lots of ambition. And it has, for me, one of the greatest experiences of looking at anything was, in fact, the day before I came out to Toronto to do the, the generator gig with you. And that was going inside the Lovell oh. Telescope to actually oh, wow. walk up, uh, take take the lift, walk across the... Is that Jodrell Bank or which one is uh, that? Yeah, that's Jodrell Bank. Oh, yeah. And it is just... You know, I know I'm never getting to space because uh, I'm unfit and have a short temper. He's These too, are two things which are no good. To if anything, the you're too physically fit. And the thumbs. Fit. I can't believe I've got Chris Hadfield going on my thumbs. Up yeah. being too physically fit. Yeah, that could happen as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, I, I, it is a funny thing to realise. I think it, it, it's a funny thing when you start going, oh... Right, I really won't be an Olympic gymnast, will I? <laughs> okay, okay. And so I think maybe a small part. I, I realised the extent to my cow, the extent of my cowardice recently, and oh. that's what will stop. Well, apart from all my other failings, that would be my big thing that would stop me going into space. Would be, I I now realise that it's just something that I think I I t- cling too much to the security of the air. Uh, wh- but it depends on the ship you're going to go in. You get in airplanes, don't you? 
I do, but I, ter- I hate it and I get frightened and I have to say the Lord's pl- Prayer in my head. I, oh, that helps. I would not be an asset to the team. <laughs> I'm an atheist and I'm like, I'll say the Lord's Prayer, that'll keep this thing afloat. Well, that, that's, that's why, what was our ambition from a very early age when one day my ambition is to shout at people in a room <laughs> and we've managed to reach out right. through I a was... course of training ourselves to be ill-tempered but imaginative. <laughs> we have therefore shouted at people across the world but not beyond this world. But I find it very interesting that when you were young, your... You weren't showy about your ambitions. You weren't like, I'm going to be an astronaut, guys. And I think that's, that shows to me sort of the nature of what you do insofar as it is about having to master a number of skills and be methodical and really focused, you know. Whereas with what we do, it's like, I'm going to be a comedian. Shut up, be a biology teacher. You're not telling me what to do. And that suits what we're... My, my wife... life is merely to create anecdote. <laughs> my wife and my observation is the bigger and the showier the wedding, the less likely the marriage is oh, to succeed. Yes. And it's sort of the same philosophy. If you lose the point of why you're getting married to the point that the wedding is becomes the event, then then the then you've kind of paid attention to the wrong part of marriage, I think. And and so I think it's the same thing if you're trying to set out to be an astronaut. If you if the if it's the showiness of the announcement and the little doing things you're doing right now, then you're probably not going to have the impetus and the continuing motivation to put up with the huge amount of dogged work that goes into actually accomplishing either of those two things. I, still I think, think there might I'd be too extreme. <laughs> I think there's two extremes on the wedding, though, because there's the $100,000 wedding yep. and there's also the drive-in wedding. Mm. So oh. somewhere in between is the perfect yeah, wedding. I think but the so, drive-in yeah. one also can be, yeah. I once went showy. to one of the white wedding yeah. in Las Vegas yeah, yeah, drive, yeah. drive-in parlor. If, 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 oh. if it's a wedding and a big gulp drink at the Sorry, same time, the... probably not. Oh, uh, headphones, headphones, headphones. There we are. Yeah. Yeah, James. Oh, yeah, I mean, right. It wasn't. There we go. We've now James had, Naismith. Uh, James Naismith was of the, the monkeys and the. Oh no, that was Michael Mike Naismith. Naismith. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, who wrote a great we, song, by the way. Yeah. He's oh, written, he wrote and, some great and, stuff. Yeah. And his his mom invented whiteout. That's right. Tipex. Yeah. That's yeah. One of the, yeah. He was a Tipex heir. Yeah. yeah, he was. He made his mom made a fortune. She was actually a secretary, and she was tired of all those little tapes, and she invented whiteout and made a whole bunch of money. But he he was an interesting guy. I learned a couple of great songs that he wrote. Which ones did you... Uh... Uh, one that he called... Uh, uh, Ten years ago... Uh, I'll get to it in a minute. I've got to get through to the chorus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Long Black Veil. He did a version of Long Black Veil that's definitive. I, I think it's an older folk song, but his for me, his version of Long Black Veil is great. I love it. Well, even though we're meant to be a book shambles, we should mention uh, also, of course, that you, you did. You were recording music in space. Mm, yes. Writing and recording and, music, yeah. Uh, and that album is uh, is available. And, mm. it's, and you, you sang a very beautiful song uh, from uh, at Hammersmith as well. And uh, Jewel in the Night. Yeah. Jewel in the Night, which was yeah. great to, to have with, with Jack Lee, the, the violinist, oh, with, yeah. with Steve, <laughs> Steve Pritty's jazz band. And, and the, uh, it's crazy. That, again, creativity in space. How, in terms of choosing songs, in terms of deciding what you're going to, and every now and again, I mean, for most people who didn't know of you, that moment that up on YouTube went the space on it, of course, you'd put up things already, but there is something so magnificent about when, you know, the planet Earth is is blue and there behind you is the planet Earth. Um, That seemed to capture people's imagination so much, and then they may have gone back if they didn't know already, the crying in space, the uh, brushing your teeth in space, all of those things. I mean, my son, he just loves watching those, those... those bits. Yeah, lots of people do all, all around the world. It's it's uh, it, if you drop yourself into an inspirational place, uh, and 
and people find inspiration in lots of different environments. Some people needed to be dead quiet. Some people wanted to be as raucously noisy as possible, right? Stand next to a waterfall or a motor speedway or something and then think. Um, but on board a spaceship, it's not as if when you get there that the only thing you're going to write about is, you know, weightlessness either. It, to me, it just... Uh, by, by getting yourself out of where you are normally comfortably and being something quite different, it just inspires a different train of thought, which then may lead you to, to write something that you otherwise never would have come up with. And, and one one night on the space station, I was we're talking about music, but I was I was playing this little guitar riff that my hands just did, and I went, "Oh, that's kind of cool. That's nice. Little A minor hammer off hammer on. Never heard of that before." And and then I started thinking of some lyrics, and I spent the whole day. The next day, uh, I'd be working on this nanotechnology experiment. Like, oh, that's a good lyric. And I'd pull my hands out and I'd go over to my quarters and I'd scribble down this line and then go back. And by the end of the day, I'd written this song called uh, Daughter of My Sins, which was sort of about a, a look at life and how you're you're kind of the, um, the inevitable result of all the decisions you've made, the good ones and the bad ones, w- whether you want to be or not. But that's okay. Daughter of my sins, and and I I wrote the whole thing and recorded it that night. So it was it was a one day effort, and it's it's not a song really about space flight, but it's definitely engendered by it. And the process of writing and creating, I think, uh, is is very much um, influenced by where you've been, but also uh, where you choose to be. So one day you you were hoping maybe you'd written a song and then you suddenly go, oh yeah, I've just noticed there's a black obelisk as well. And you're like, that's, I must have written the next level of evolution of songwriting. This is fantastic. Well, that's what, in terms of, again, idiots such as Josie and me, we have different ways of thinking. And I was thinking, the loneliness, is there any point of, of loneliness? You know, you, you have, have a family that are below you. I think of the time you feel lonely when you're in a hotel room in Brisbane. Yeah. Let alone that. But I don't sometimes... feel lonely in Brisbane because I've got a lovely deck you can go for a oh, run on. That's nice. uh, people use space travel, including Bowie with Space Oddity, as a metaphor for loneliness mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, Elton John, Rocket Man, that song is not about space flight. It's about loneliness. It's about, I think, being a gay man as a public figure in the 70s in North America or in, or in Europe or in England or wherever, around worldwide. That He found that, I think, intensely lonely or at least mm-hmm. uh, an inability to just be himself. And think it's going to be a long, long time till touchdown brings me around. And so he just used it as a metaphor. But uh, I've never met a lonely astronaut. It's not lonely at all. I've never met a lonely farmer, actually. But but when you're the loneliest people I've ever met live in the middle of the biggest cities. That's a lonely place to be. I, if I were you, I think I'd be frustrated because I'd be like, you've not even been to space. You're writing all these songs about how lonely it is. It's not lonely. <laughs> no, it, it, it isn't. And I mean, I guess you could choose to be lonely, but, but in truth, you see all 7 billion people every day. You just look out the window and you go, hello, whatever. Hello, South Africa. I can see you all right now. And 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 20 minutes later, you're over Brisbane and you can see all of, of Australia and and so you get to see the entirety of humanity all the time. So it doesn't make – I didn't feel lonely for a second. I and suppose I it's felt a, busy. It's a choice – exactly. It's a choice to be solitary perhaps. Right. But there's too much going on. There's a big difference between uh, being alone and being lonely. And fundamentally we're all alone. So it's really kind of a question of how – what you feel connected with and whether you feel what you're doing is worthwhile. That's I think the essence of loneliness to me. And whether other people value you, and mm-hmm. and so, yeah, it continues to be a metaphor. There was a, there's a Canadian man just released a song called Astronaut. That's all it is. Is they could have put in loneliness and the same number of syllables, 
Um, but I think I'd but be it's quite not annoyed that way. If, if I'm you. I feel like misrepresentation <laughs> of my industry. Yeah, so I've, just, I've just expressed the entire level of my uh, frustration with it or <laughs> annoyance. Well, thinking of loneliness, that leads us to alien megastructures. Uh-huh. Uh, reading, I've got this wonderful collection uh, called Worlds Beyond. And Let me see that. Like Buckminster Fuller, and wow. uh, and it's uh, 1970s. It's, it's it's ideas. Jacques Cousteau is in there. Oh, cool. Talking about well, well, Jacques Cousteau, he he mentions the idea that he inspired instance, me hugely. Jacques, Jacques Cousteau, I just found. Fa- oh, I have a little story. Quick, quick story. Yeah, no, please, I, I met Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, he came to the Kennedy Space Center, and I was his tour guide for the day. I got to take Arthur C. Huh. Clarke, my, you know, not, not even a hero, just a person that I could hardly even visualize as being a real human being. And um, and he lived in Sri Lanka or Ceylon for all those years. And I said, and partway through the day, I felt comfortable. I said, why, why Sri Lanka? Why Ceylon? And he said, well, I was with Jacques Cousteau, and we were going on the very first scuba diving expedition down to the Great Barrier Reef, and we stopped there. And I, I liked it. I said, Okay, but that can't be the only place you liked. Why truly Sri Lanka? And he said, well, the real answer is to get away from a woman that I married in the lobby of a hotel in Key Largo. And I thought, what? (laughs) That came out of your mouth? You moved to Sri Lanka to get away from a woman you married in the lobby of a hotel in Key Largo. That, that's a whole facet of your life. I had no idea. I was I was amazed to hear him say that. It made me laugh. That is the but, first line of a Graham Greene novel, oh, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what brought you here? Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> but also, it just goes to show that people you can fantastically admire the work of and think of as in full command of their lives right, and, will still do something that ridiculous. <laughs> there he lives now here in Colombo. But anyway, you were talking about this book. Well, I just want because this has various people talking about the idea that there must be life uh, somewhere in the universe. And I wonder that, just by the, the the distance that you've travelled, has this changed your view of what our galaxy alone might hold? I mean, our galaxy is so, so such a ridiculous size. I, I think anyway, I, actually, before. I don't think my view has changed. Just look if you just spend a couple minutes outside at night and look up, especially if it's a cold, clear night, and you just look at the enormity of of this and the numbers, even just the few thousand stars we can see, where it's just this little tiny subset that are right close to us. Even then, you start to think, well, we can't be all of it. I mean, how arrogant could that be that we think we're the whole of it? And every discovery we've made since, and what Brian Cox talks about, the numbers become so staggeringly huge that that it's just the the height of arrogance to think that this is the only life that could possibly have ever existed. But I also think it's the height of arrogance to think that this enormous, endless, both in distance and time of, of our universe, that somehow we're so fascinating that some life from somewhere else is whizzing around and only landing in wheat fields and leaving strange geometric shapes or abducting people that don't um, seem particularly credible under any circumstances and then bringing them back with fancy stories or that we see something in the sky and our only possible first conclusion is, well, I don't know what that is. Therefore, it must be intelligent life from another galaxy. That does. That's just... That's just a, uh, a narcissism to me also. See, I think the depressing side of it is that sometimes you imagine that there may well be life littered around the universe. The, the, the size, though, the distances is so great uh, that whenever another life form, a conscious life form, might get, all it will constantly find is graveyards. That's right. So, oh, and that, that's, that's, that's the bit which I think was the, a few a while ago, I remember yeah. just sitting there going, I think we were doing a monkey cage, you're just going, how depressing to think that, that we, we will always find that the, the, we, we've just missed, this life is just developing, we better right. leave this planet now before we interfere for, with it too for much. For a billion years. Uh, and this fantastic civilization we've found 
found the last embers of their <laughs> great structures. The and it's that, still glowing, but, it, yeah. but they're done. Yeah, they haven't oh. even shut all the lights off. And that may well be. What we don't understand is time. Time is so enormous. E- even our own Earth, four and a half billion years. But our Earth was here, or no, I mean, the universe was here for nine billion years before our Earth formed. And the, the inconceivably huge nature of that number, I think, does make it indicate that uh, it's not only going to be geometrically hard to find life, but it's going to be temporarily, you know, just in time to find life. And and so that does maybe put a little more onus and imperative on us to do a better job of managing our own because it's a rare thing. Even if it is prevalent in millions of cases over the enormity of the universe, it's still rare in our neighborhood. And, and therefore, we, we need to nurture it maybe slightly more deliberately. Do you find that that's part of, I mean, to me, one of the, the great lessons when I was probably in my 20s and really getting back into science was to to read Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot mm. and then to listen to him and, and then to look at those images. And to, I think it's a, the idea that every politician should be made to look at this fantastic image, this image which shows how tiny we are within our own solar system and the beauty of his words. Do you find that since you, I mean, certainly you, you talk about this in, in, in your first book, do you feel that now having just been able to see the whole of the earth within your field of vision, how much that has changed the importance of telling people this is what we know and this is what we need to find out in these yeah, our journeys? I, I, I don't think Carl Sagan was trying to tell people like like so many people harangue you into into understanding something like we we often fall victim to right now with climate change or something we try and say i know you believe something else but i'm going to bully you into believing what i believe which to me is is an ineffective way to communicate uh what i thought carl Sagan did so brilliantly was just to present the carefully built rational inevitability of the whole idea and then how by the end of it could you could you disagree or could you argue or could you not let it slightly change your own perspective from that point on. I wish he'd had a chance to orbit the world a thousand times. He could have taken that eloquence and made it even more informed. And so as someone else who, who has orbited the world, whatever, 2,600 times, how do I then uh, not just yell at people to, hey, you know, play nicer, you know, because that's not why people are not playing nicely. Mm-hmm. But how instead do you try and influence people, especially at a young age when so many of our hatreds are taught? How do you get people at a young age to start to internalize where we actually are? <laughs> and, 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 and life does not consist of this little square that you grew up in. This or this little circle or this little, however you want to define the limits of, of the neighborhood that that or, that nurtured you, how can you let people see the enormity that Carl Sagan was talking about to inform their earliest decision making and their earliest biases, and then to try and uh, enthuse them to the point that they push themselves to uh, to do something different with their lives than they might have done otherwise. To me, that's why I wrote that book. It's why I've spoken in schools all that time. It's why I did the second book of images, You Are Here book, was to mm-hmm. to let people see the real world, not to say this this is the world you need to think this or oh look at this it's horrible or look at this this is sad you need I, I'm telling you which emotion to adopt based on this image instead saying this is what the world actually looks like in its rawness and now you can decide what you think. That to me, that's a much more 
uh, reasoned or, or maybe important way to express the idea. And, and hopefully some people um, find it that way also. Well, I would agree. I mean, that's what I think with Pale Blue Dot, they should be bullied to sit in the room. <laughs> they should be made to sit in the room. But there are no, yeah, as you said, they, they, it's not, there seems to be some, some movements, I suppose, sometimes in, in, in rationalism, etc., which just go, your idea is stupid. Yes. Mm. You know, I you know. can't win well, people. But if you the go. The internet is full of that, right? You've got this story, and it's not a bad story, but I was reading this story, and it's pretty, I mean, that's how I kind of feel about evolution, when you actually right. see the time frame, and your mutation of anti-natural selection, and you look at, you know, the blobfish, and you look at a piglet squid or vampire you know a lot of it's actually in the ocean that's the yeah. thing is once you the bears, start looking the air bears what are those little tiny guys oh, called oh yeah yeah the you little know, pigs the, yeah, you know yeah. the tiny little scrapey yes, bears yeah, yeah. It's, that can it's, survive it's, anything anywhere yeah it's incredible so you know the other book i read on orbit was called darwin's ghost and I didn't have much time for reading there. I, I was either doing things or trying to spend a little time creating things. Uh, but I did read the entirety of Darwin's Ghost, which is looking at what Charles learned from going on the Beagle and going to the Galapagos and then looking at uh, whatever he looked at, um, not mollusks, but um, oh, he, yeah, barnacles, I think, barnacles. barnacles. And, and, you know, spending years and years studying barnacle worms while his thoughts were coalescing into the uh, evolution of the species. But then now going back uh, here and, and looking at the ideas and looking for further evidence and reanalyzing the whole thought process and, and not forcing people in any conclusions. But it was a really – it wasn't a particularly uh, eloquent book to read, it, but it was really thought-provoking. And I found every time I read a chapter when we'd gather for dinner on the spaceship the next night or something, I invariably brought something out of that book because – it was like, hey, I hadn't really thought of this idea this way, and I'm not sure I completely agree with it, but it's fascinating mm. to explore mentally, and that's what the world should be for everybody. Well, I think Darwin's Steve Jones, who wrote a wonderful book called Almost Like a Whale and has written many other books about mm. Darwin as well, I asked him once, I was doing a show about Darwin, I said, is there any Darwin I shouldn't read? He went, don't read his books about barnacles. He became overly obsessed. <laughs> and they are still seen as being the great books on barnacles because oh, yeah. no one else is bothered. But <laughs> yeah, that, that beauty of that right, I would highly recommend Almost Like a Whale. Every time you go in a bookshop and you go to the uh, the section on barnacles, it's a very thin section. Yeah. Really. yeah the well, great it's books a very on... thick section, but it's only one book. <laughs> it's a really big book by Charles Darwin. Uh, Chris, I know you have to go to the Science Museum and uh, thank you so much for uh, coming down and I would highly recommend both your songs from a tin can and the two books and you were doing a, a, a new book a, a children's book called The Darkest Dark is coming out in uh, in the fall and it, it's uh, it's for younger kids but it basically takes my life story to hopefully give a young kid uh, a way to deal with one of the fears of being small and so uh, so I hope hope it's a useful book also that sounds fantastic great. Thank you very much. Thank Chris. you so much. And that was Josie Long and Robin Hood's book shambles. Yes. Hello, friends. This is Josie Long here. I wanted to read out some people who I'd like to say thank you to for helping fund our um, podcast. Uh, we've got a Patreon, Patreon, Patreon thing going on and if you did feel flush and you did want to join in that would be amazing because it will cover us hiring the studio and having guests and stuff but if not please listen to it we just want people to listen to it and we hope you like it thank you so all the episodes and reading lists can be found at cosmicgenome.com forward slash shambles but i wanted to say thank you to gavin smith ben hughes michael paley david wilson matthew parker joe gosling robbie wilson sam mangan Mangum, not Mangan, whoever Sam Mangan is, he gets nothing. Victoria Riches, Jem, love it when people just one name like Madonna, Lawrence, Jonas Dam, which is a hell of a good name, Helen Redshaw, 
Russell Hillman, Sean Beatty, Mikhail Rodgard, Joanna, John Stout, Paul Ashton, Jed Kelly, Bob Ryan, Maeve Grindle, who I'm fairly certain that I've met, Chloe Cotter, Phil Allman, Tom, which one? We'll never know. Barry Shapiro, Helen McLean or McLean, depending on the diehard Scottish connection, uh, Colin Duffin, Paul Hines, Pete Ackrill, Amy S. Rushton, Tony Hanlon, my friend Tom Humberston. Hi, Tom. John, Ilza Rasnaka. I'm going to say that better because I just sight read it badly. Ilza Rasnaka and Ox Lennon. Some absolutely belting names there. Um, thank you so much for supporting the podcast. We really hope you enjoy it. We absolutely lovely love getting to make it. So thanks. <laughs>